Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We heard that verse read last week in our worship service. And I just want to point out an obvious thing about that verse. David expected, and probably was, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Walking through a time in his life that physically, what he saw around him seemed like the end out of his control, enemies against him. And see, when the psalmist writes, the psalmist writes with words like that. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Oh, Yahweh, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Why do you hide your face from me as an enemy? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever had those feelings that God is so far away and so distant and he doesn't care about your situation because if he did, he would be doing something about it? Now I know, maybe you're pious and you say, I would never think those things. But have you felt them? Does your life look like you feel them because you're anxious or worried or sad or fearful. You see, you may not be confessing those things, but you are feeling those things. Otherwise, you, you would be able to cast those, those things aside. There is a direct connection for us in our lives between what we're walking through and God's sovereign hand over that path. And one of the keys to moving through that from a scriptural standpoint is to remember the promises of God and the faithfulness of his character. See, the psalmist gives us voice to those feelings so God knows that we will have those feelings. And if we're so pious that we say, I would never feel those things, and yet we live knowing that we are feeling those things, but we're too fearful to voice it, then we're denying the power of the word of God. Because the Psalms are a prayer book for us. And we read those words in the Psalm, we pray them right back to God. And God hears our prayers because we're praying His word back to Him. So the key to walking through, the psalmist always does that, right? We just learned Psalm 88 that we sang together last month. And there's, there's very little light in that Psalm. But almost all the other Psalms... The immediate phrase after this, but I trust in you, O Lord. But you are the one who is faithful, O God. Reminding themselves of what? The psalmist are reminding themselves of the character and the work and the promises of God. Israel was feeling that. 
They were in captivity in Babylon. And they had just heard these rich words that we looked at last two, the last two weeks in the second servant song. They had just heard those words that God, not only in the first servant song, that God will send his servant who will be exercising justice and do the will of God, but the second servant song where God promises this is the mission not only to redeem Judah, not only to redeem the remnant of Israel, but to redeem the remnant of the entire world that that's the job of the servant. It would be too little of a thing just to redeem the remnant of Judah. And at the end of that, remember last week, the, the, the creation was commanded to sing. You remember? The creation sees what God is doing in the redemption of his people, and the creation sings. The creation gives, gives rejoicing to God. And yet... The people of Judah still awaiting that are having a hard time believing God's promises. They're having a hard time believing God's word. Just like we do at times. It may be in our head, but sometimes connecting it to our heart, we fail to do. Sometimes we do it willfully, don't we? Sometimes we do it willfully. We know what the word says, but we embrace the anger. We embrace the fear. It's my right to feel this way because I've been wronged. Other times we know the word, but we, can't, we, we cannot connect the truth of the word with the reality of what we're walking through because we feel like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. So Isaiah, listening to God, speaks for God to encourage his people that he has not forgotten them. Because that's their cry, isn't it? After hearing this great promise of the second service, servant song and the, the creation breaking forth with song and, and because the Lord has comforted his people who will have, and he will have compassion on his afflicted, Zion says, Yahweh has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. So even with the promises of God, they're walking in doubt that he will carry them out. And God wants his people to know that's just not true. And he wants us to know this morning that when we feel that way, it's just not true that God has forsaken us. It's just not true that God will forget us. So today, in understanding the word specifically directed to those in Babylonian captivity, we want to make sure that we are learning how to trust God better, that we are learning that in the midst of the valley of the shadow of, de- of death, we remember that we have been redeemed by a God faithful to his covenant. We have been redeemed by a God who promises to carry out all of his promises, and it's based on his character that he does so, and that is the vehicle through which we overcome and we walk. We don't stop in the valley of the shadow of death, do we? We walk through it with the encouragement that our God is faithful. Isaiah wants the people in captivity to know, and we need to know that today because we are the ones who have been set free. Turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Let's stand together as I read our text, which will be verse 14 through the first three verses of chapter 50. Beginning in Isaiah 49, 14. But Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. 
Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders or your children make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around you and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares Yahweh, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their, que- and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust off your feet, of your feet. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says Yahweh, either the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as the wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am Yahweh, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus says Yahweh, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Well, in these verses, we hear Yahweh give four promises in response to Zion's lament, which we see in verse 14, that prove they will not be put to shame if they wait on the Lord, which is right in the end of verse 23. Four promises in response to Zion's lament that prove they will not be put to shame if they wait on him. Beginning in verse 15. Well, let's look at verse 14 first. That's the summary of their thoughts right at the beginning. But Zion said, 
Yahweh has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Notice that the the people are now called Zion. You notice a change? What have we been seeing over and over and over again in chapters 40 through 48? We saw that double reference all the time to Israel and Jacob, or to Jacob and to Israel, remember? And we we saw that every time that that was used, there was a call to the people or a statement to the people reminding them of what they should be doing in response to the word of their Lord. And that just as, just as Jacob wrestled with God and became Israel, redeemed in a sense, this was the nation that, that God had redeemed them. Remember, God gives his law to the people after he redeems them from Egypt. And so he's reminding them of who they are, but also reminding them that their life looks like something different. Now, all of a sudden, we see them referred to as Zion, the place But the place and the people are the same in the book of Isaiah, are they not? Zion, that place where God dwells, the place where all the nations will come and search out what Yahweh has to say and look for his people. So there's a hopefulness even in the the way that Isaiah addresses them as he voices their lament. And we can understand their lament, can't we? Being in captivity, now some of that captivity, if you, if you think about the, look, the book of Lamentations, that is, that is written just after the Jerusalem is destroyed, and there is this constant lament about the, the city being destroyed and the people being disgraced, and there's a constant confession that their sin brought it on, but they're having a hard time. They're having a hard time remembering the promises of God. They're having a hard time remembering that God is the one who promised to redeem them. And so much that we get to the end of the book, and we hear verses like this in in Lamentations. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Yahweh, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Now that's the right note, isn't it? I'm looking around and seeing this with my eyes, but we know you, our God, endures forever. Your throne, even though, even though your throne on earth is destroyed, you still reign forever. But listen to the very next verse. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Now that's, again, a hopeful look forward to the character and promises of God, isn't it? Now listen to the last verse of the book of Lamentations. Renew our days as of old unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Do you feel the rubber band? It just pulls to hope and then snaps back with rejection every time. So we can understand why they would feel rejected. That God, this is God's people residing in God's place and God has told them how he would worship, they would worship him there and how he would visit them and now it's destroyed all because of their sin and it's been decades. People have died and now it comes along, they read the prophecy and they realize that God promises to send a servant to redeem them and they're having a hard time because they are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. So we understand their lament And the scriptures are clear that God understands it when we lament as well because it's full of lament of God's people and God answers us with compassion and that's what he does here. 
So the stage is set by their lament. So let us not be the people who come and said, are you kidding me? God just told them what they were going to do and they're crying about this. They're crying in their Kool-Aid about this because now they're still stuck there. God just told them he was going to be, that they were going to be released from there. Let us not be those people. Let us be the people who knows what it's like to walk in the midst of trouble in this earth and have a hard time sometimes applying the promises of God to us. And let's hear what God has to say. First, he says, though you fear being forgotten, I will never forget you. Look at verse 15. Yahweh begins speaking. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Now, the expected answer to that is, no, that can't happen. Now, think about our day today. There's a lot of women who don't understand this kind of nurturing that God has created them to be. There's a lot of people in our society who would cast off someone in the womb. But the expected answer, of of course not. A mother is always going from the womb, take care of her people, take care of her children. But then God clearly knows us. Look at the third line. Even these may forget. So it shouldn't be. But if you put all your faith in human beings, even they will forget you. But I, what does he say? I will not forget you. Now, isn't that just like God? He just cuts away all of the other stuff and gets right to the nub of things and says, you're afraid of being forgotten? Listen to my words. I will not forget you. Now, we should be able to close the book right here, right? And say, okay, yeah, we were wrong. We know you're never going to forget us, even though it feels like it. We know that your promises say not, but God knows us. And he knows he needs to keep encouraging. And he needs to keep giving us the encouragement to trust him. Look at verse 16. He's going to demonstrate why they should know that he will never forget them. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now let's deal with the second one first because that's the one that's kind of like not in our culture very much. But if he's saying the walls of their walls are continually before them, he's saying your security, your life is always before me because that's what the walls would do, right? The walls were not there to to stop life from happening. They were there to keep intruders and invaders out. The gates would pull up and the soldiers would man the walls and they would be ready for the attack. So the walls were there and God says it's always going to be before us. We were talking last night with, with Jeff, and we were, we were talking about our time in Kenya where in, in, in Nairobi, we were driving all the, through all these places that every house had a wall around it with barbed wire or glass on the top of the wall and oftentimes security guards and dogs and security systems. And Jeff said, that's kind of life in some of these countries. But it doesn't, it's not because we're fearful. It's because we're wise. He said, we could go out and walk down the street. Jeff lives in South Africa. We can go out and walk down the street. But when we come home, yeah, yeah, we have walls around. Why? Because it's about their security. And God says, your walls, your security, that is always before me. But he also says something. We just sang three songs today. And do you remember what they said? Each of those songs had the line in it. My name engraved upon your hands or on the palms of your hands. Look at the text in Isaiah. Verse 16, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. It's not just our name. Of course it's our name, but it's so much more than that. It is us. Listen to the way Spurgeon says this. If you've read many of Spurgeon's sermons, I don't want you to emulate his model of preaching, but I do want you to emulate his model of rhetoric. He had a way to convey thoughts, and I want you to listen to what he says about this. 
Heaven and earth may well be astonished that rebels should obtain so great a nearness to the heart of infinite love, so great a nearness to be written on the palm of his hands. I have graven thee. It does not say thy name. Thy name is there, but that is not all. I have graven thee. See the fullness of this, says Spurgeon. I have graven thy person, thine image, thy case, thy circumstance, thy sins, thy temptations, thy weaknesses, thy wants, thy works. I have graven thee. Everything about you, all that concerns you, I have put it all here. Will you ever say again that your God has forsaken you when he has graven you on his own palms. Isn't that wonderful? This is everything about us. God knows us intimately from our mother's womb, and all of that is before him all the time. Every time he figuratively opens up his hands and looks, he sees us. How can he forget us? If you engraved a name on the palm of your hand, how many times would you look at that through the day? If you engraved the picture of someone on the palm of your hand, how many times would you look at it? Would you, ever, would you ever endure the insult that you were forgetting them? What would you do? You'd go, how can I forget you? And that's what's being said. He makes his case because of his character and his promise, and he is the one who has created us and knows us, and he is always with us. He will never forget. We're never going to be out of his mind. Though you fear being forgotten, I will never forget you. Then he says, though you fear being forsaken, I will bless you with many children. I have no idea. Can you put the next one up there? Why I put grandchildren? That's my mistake. But it's children, so just erase that. I meant to go in there and fix it beforehand. I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote the outline, but just think of children here. I'm sorry? Because we have now grandchildren. Maybe so, maybe so. Though you fear being forsaken, I will bless you with many children. And he describes this in several ways. Look at verse 17. I will adorn you as a bride, 17 and 18. Your builders make haste, is what the ESV says. And most of our versions say that. I really think the Hebrew text is what should be here, that your children, your children make haste. This is another, um, another manuscript strain with the Dead Sea Scrolls that, that have builders. And if you look how builders, um, it's just one little tiny uh, difference in the way that these two words are spelled. And builders make sense considering we've just talked about walls, right? We can see that. But everything past this is about children. And I want you to look If you think your children make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you, you see the transition, right? Those who have have tried to destroy you and held you into captivity, they're going away, but all the children you're grieving over, they're coming in, because verse 18 says, lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather, they come to you. Now that makes much more sense if the word is children rather than builders, doesn't it? It's the children who you are to lift up your eyes and see because that's what the next several verses deal with. So I think what we should be reading here is the Hebrew text that says um, your children or your sons, your children make haste. They are coming towards you. All your destroyers, they are those who laid you to waste. They're going out from you. How many times have we seen this kind of turning upside down and transition in Isaiah where the world is one way and God says, I'm going to turn it upside down. 
You think you're all so proud and, and all your successes are good? Well, I'm going to completely turn up your nation and I'm going to desolate your land and jackals are going to inhi- inhabit it and you're not going to be there. God is constantly promising things like that. And then he says to those who, who will obey me, I'm going to restore all of that. I'm going to make everything green again. I'm going to make the waters flow again. This is another way. You're in captivity, but they're going to recede and your children, we'll see here, they're gr- that the nation is grieving over It's all this picture of a mother with her children. They are coming in. Lift up your eyes, verse 18. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares Yahweh. Do you hear what he's doing here? He's making an oath. As I live, you shall put them on as an ornament. You shall bind them as a bride does. They are going to be beautiful to you. Just like a bride would dress up for her wedding and look beautiful and put on ornamental wear, that's what your children will be to you. You're lamenting that I've forgotten you. You're lamenting that I've forsaken you. But I intend to prosper you. And this is what it's going to look like. It's going to be an adornment for you as, and it will be grace from me. And he does this as an oath. And that will be important for us in a moment. Remember we learned in Hebrews when we went through there that when someone swears an oath, they're swearing by somebody greater. Remember learning that in chapter 6? Where God, when he swears an oath, he only can swear by his name because there's no one greater. So that means when God makes an oath, then it is automatically true because his character is true. So he's reminding him with this kind of a strength. And we'll see this idea come up in a few verses as well. Just mark it that he has made this oath. So these many children who will adorn you as a bride but also who will overflow your devastated land. Look at verse 19. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallow you up will be far away. You see what he's saying there? Mount Zion may be lying in rubble and you're mourning over this, but look up. As I restore it, there's not even going to be room there for all the people. All of your children, all of the people that are going to come back and worship me. He's using this picture of a mother with, in bereavement that she doesn't have children to say, I have not forgotten you and I have not forsaken you. And he says, your land will not even be able to, to, to hold all of them. Look at verse 20. The children of your bereavement will, say, will, will yet say in your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. I mean, you can almost picture this using this metaphor of your child coming and saying, Mommy, there's not room for me. There's not room for me to sit on the couch with you. It's that kind of a picture that we're seeing here that there are going to be, you're in mourning, but there are going to be so many coming, they're going to come to you and say, What are you going to do with me? There's not room in the land. Because that's what they're pining about, remember? They're in captivity. They want to return home. And God has promised them that. God has promised them that they will return, that under the decree of Cyrus, they are going to come back and the remnant will come and they'll rebuild the wall and they'll rebuild the temple. So that is coming, but it's never been the ultimate purpose and Isaiah has it. It's been the close fulfillment, but never the full fulfillment. There's always the spiritual overtone that God is redeeming the people from the entire world, not merely Israel, not merely of the remnant from Judah, but he is redeeming the entire world. And there will be so many, there's not even going to be room in them, using the picture that he's been using. 
So not only these children who will adorn you as a bride, who will overflow your devastated land, but also who will surprise you with their presence. Look at verse 21. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne these? Now the these draws emphasis here. You see it three times in this verse? It's like, this is what, it's the mother looking around. She has looked up now. So the metaphor stands for the nation looking up, not mourning anymore, but looking up and seeing the promises of God fulfilled. These, who has borne them? These, I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought them? These, behold, I was left alone. From where have they come? That's the emphasis here. Looking around and being total surprised. Now, should they be surprised? No, this is the promises of God being worked out. But their vision was so narrow, all they saw was the valley of the shadow of death. That's all they saw. And God's saying, look up, remember my promises, remember my character, and this is what you see. You may, you may be in a valley for a little bit, but look up. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I've promised, and, look at, and these, these promises will come to pass. Why? Because I have made them. And so all that we've learned about God's character comes to bear here to remind us what is actually going on. So not only will there be surprise, but in verses 22 and 23, these, these children who will be delivered by your enemies. Now I will add that the enemies had become his people in the picture, but they were enemies. Look at verse 22. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Adonai Yahweh. Notice your capitalization there. And remember that we emphasize Yahweh because that's the covenant name of God. So when we see that, we're remembering God's covenant faithfulness to his promises. Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the people. So he's lifting up his hand to the nations. Now, I could be lifting it up to um, call them, but given the fact that the oath was just mentioned, might it be that he's lifting up his hand in the oath, lifting up his hand to the nations? This is what I'm doing based on his own character? I think because the oath has already been mentioned, there's, that's, that's a, a, a good Uh, interpretation of lifting up his hand. But we also know his hand is powerful, right? His right arm, his right hand, that's the symbol of his power. So whatever he says and does with that will come to pass. And he talks about lifting, raising his signal to the peoples. Keep your finger in Isaiah 49 and turn to chapter 11. Remind us of what we learned many moons ago in Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to just look at verse 10. This is that section that is closing off and expounding upon the, the righteous branch that is the Messiah, this shoot that comes forth from the stump of Jesse, and it's the root of the stump of Jesse. Remember? It's the root of Jesse. So he is, this is the incarnation being spoken about, that, that he is flowing from Jesse, which means he's what? From David's line, but he is also Jesse's root. It's where Jesse comes from because he is, he's eternal. So this is bringing us in this section, just reminding you, this is bringing us his incarnation work. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, 
the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from the Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah and from the four corners of the earth. And he goes on to talk about that. So there is a, a local fulfillment, right? Eighth century. But there is also the spiritual fulfillment of the forgiveness of sin for all the nations that will come to the mountain. So that's the language that's used. Turn back to Isaiah 49, verse 22. That's the language that's used there, that he will raise my signal to the peoples. Now, given the way signal has been used here, there's another time signal is used to talk about calling Assyria, if you remember that. But given the way that it's used, I think we're, we're clearly seeing that his signal is who? Christ. It is Christ. It is his servant. It is the messianic one who is to come. And he will raise them to the na- he will raise his hand to the nations and my signal to the peoples. We are we are still in that whole earth vision here, not just Judah. Judah will be a physical representation of that when the remnant returns, and there will be a physical representation of the spiritual reality of God's redeeming power of setting us free from sin. But twenty, look at verse twenty three, no twenty two. We haven't left twenty two yet. And they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. So it's giving this picture that your descendants, your downline, is going to come not just from, not just from those in Judah, but it's going to come from all of them. They're going to bear them all. They're going to come in, and they're part of my people now. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you. Now, these used to be the enemies, right? The nations used to be the enemies. But God has promised that he is going to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so they're bearing the the more people that are going to come. And I'm going to expand your boundaries even further. I'm going to spare you and all that I intend to redeem. Then, and and lick the dust of your feet. That's that... uh, it can be used for judgment, but it can also just used for being, being bowed down to. Now, it's not bowing down to just the people. It's to the God of their people, right? They're coming and showing their allegiance to their God. These are the people of Zion, and there's a purpose. And this is kind of the center of our text here. There's a purpose here at the end of verse 23. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. So we've already seen this idea of waiting several times in Isaiah. We're not going to go back through all those. But remember, those who wait on the Lord will be undergirded by him, uh, like under, under um, eagle's wings. The, the Messiah, the, the servant, as we met him before the servant songs in Isaiah, he will never weary. He will never weary at all. But when we weary, our strength is renewed when we what? Take everything into our own power and solve our own problems. No. When we wait on the Lord, because he's the one who's in charge. He is the sovereign one. He not only knows about the situation we're walking through, he not only knows about the valley of the shadow of death, he's orchestrated it for us to walk in so that we might know and love him and trust him more as he sustains us as we walk through there. So all of this is going to happen so that God's people will know And we've seen in other places that all the nations will know, and we'll see that again in a few minutes, that all the nations will know, but that they will know that he is Yahweh. He is the one who is the covenant faithful God. 
I'm not gonna, I was going to say more, but I'm not going to do that. I'll save this. Um, Though you fear being forgotten, I will never forget you. Though you fear being forsaken, I will bless you with many children. Third, the third promise, though you fear being overpowered, I will overpower your oppressors. Look at verse 24. He asks you a couple of questions. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Now, again, we have a textual issue here. The Hebrew text, instead of tyrant, says righteous. Righteous. And there are commentators and translators that say righteous just doesn't make sense there. So we're going to go some other textual traditions. And, and, and that's not uncommon. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not downgrading that, that that can't happen. That happens in textual criticism all the time. The, what, what's translated in your Bible is affected by, by different strains, different uh, strands of, of text that we have. But I wonder if the Hebrew text that says righteous isn't the correct way to understand this. Look at, look at your text here. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? That's one question, right? Can, can the mighty one who had the power to take prey, is there anyone more powerful? And the second, or the captives of a righteous one, be rescued? Now think about it for a minute. When the Babylonians came in under Nebuchadnezzar and they took the southern kingdom into captivity in 586 and destroyed the temple and took them into captivity, were they doing the Lord's bidding? They were. So in that sense, can that taking be considered righteous? It can. Even if they did it in ways that weren't righteous, the act was righteous because it was obeying whether they did it to obey God or did it to build up their own power. God called them and they did what God said because God is sovereign. So follow this here. Look back at your text. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Is there anyone powerful enough? Or the captives of the righteous be rescued? Is there anyone righteous enough to rescue the captives who were taken righteously? In other words, is there anyone who has a law or a character that is even more righteous that supersedes their act. And that's what I think is being set up here for us to see the character of God. Look at verse 25. For thus says Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken. In other words, I'm more powerful. And the prey of the right or the righteous one be rescued. In other words, I'm more righteous. I called them to do this to begin with, and my purposes now are otherwise than that, and I am the one who can override them. Now, if tyrant is the right reading, it fits as well, right? It's just another way of talking about power. And God says, I am the more powerful, and I will do what I say, and no earthly tyrant or righteous one is more powerful or more righteous than me. Why? Well, look what he says in the middle of verse 25. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Whoever your enemies are now, I am promising you that these children will multiply because I will contend with them. They've contended with you, and now I will contend with them, and I will save your children. Uh, Verse 26, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Now, that's kind of hard language for us, but that's prophetic language to talk about God's righteous anger directed toward a people who hate him or are disobedient to him. That's the language of the scripture that's used. And so they're going to meet their judgment. Then, not only will it be 
you, as it said earlier, you will know, then all flesh shall know that I am Yahweh. And then he he identifies himself as Yahweh, the covenant faithful God, Savior, Redeemer, the one who will save you from your sin. Remember, after the promise that they were going to come back from uh, from captivity, the last verse of that chapter told us there's no peace for the wicked. Because it's not just about the physical return, it's about the spiritual redemption that it symbolizes, that it stands for. So he's the savior and the redeemer. He's the mighty one of Jacob. All language we've seen all the way through Isaiah. We won't take time to flesh each one of those out today because we've done it over and over in this book. He's identifying himself as the one who is capable of carrying out all of these plans and honoring all these promises so that his people and the rest of the world will know that he has not forsaken or forgotten his people. It is the character and work of God that does this. Well, how does he do this? The final, the fourth and and final promise is, though you fear being divorced and your children sold into slavery for your sins, I will redeem you through my power. Look at verse 1 of chapter 50. Thus says Yahweh, where is your mother's certificate of divorce? with which I sent her away. Now, this would have been common. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses, that if a man was unhappy with his wife, he could issue her a certificate of divorce and there wasn't anything she could do about it. There are rules that were governing that. It wasn't something that pleased God, but it was something that men had to do. And the reason the laws were given was to protect the woman that he divorced. And you can read about that. And so he's saying, if I've forsaken you, If you think I've completely forsaken and forgotten you, he uses the language of divorce and says, where's the divorce certificate? If I've done that, where's the certificate? You should have it. You should have it, but you don't have it because I did not send you away for good. It was a temporary, it was was his discipline for his people. Now in Jeremiah, we see the language of divorce used, don't we? But that's for the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, we don't see the language of divorce used because from the southern kingdom is the remnant of, From that remnant comes Christ, the Messiah, the servant, the one who will come and fulfill all of those promises, fulfill all the law, be the seed of Abraham that will provide the salvation for everyone in union with him. So he says, it's not there. That's the point. You, you, say, you say that you're, fear, you're fearing being divorced and, and, and I'm telling you, you don't even have the certificate of divorce. So what, what, on what basis are you saying that? And then the second half of verse 1, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? So in other words, they re- they, all through we've seen glimpses of Israel knowing their sin, right? Mostly Isaiah telling us about that. And throughout the prophets, we can see this. We saw Daniel. When Daniel figures out from Jeremiah that the captivity is almost over, what's the first thing that he does? He drops to his knees to pray, to confess that they are in captivity because of their own sinfulness, and he pleads with God for the glory and, and, and steadfastness of his own name to come and redeem his people. But there was no neglect of the sin. He knew why they were in captivity. And so this, this is saying, listen, it, it, I haven't sold you. I may be disciplining you, but I haven't sold you to creditors because where is the document that showed you that I've done that? You're still my people. I haven't sold you away. That's where this redemption language comes from, right? As if God had sold them away. No, he's there to redeem them. Redeem them from what? Captivity to their sin. This is how he accomplishes all these promises. Behold, 
the last two lines of verse one, behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. So there's a reality for what you're feeling, but it's not permanent because there's no bill of sale and there's no certificate of divorce. But it's because of your sin that you're in this place. Now that sin has to be dealt with, doesn't it? That's why there's no peace for the wicked, even if they return to the land. Look at verse 2. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? So I came and I offered you redemption. I sent my prophets. I spoke my word to you and said, repent of your sin. Turn away your haughtiness, your high-mindedness, your your dependence on yourself, your worldly um, thinking and your worldly wisdom. I sent my prophets to say, turn away from them so that I could reward you with the blessings of the covenant, but you refused, so I gave you the what? The curses of the covenant. And I came to you, where were you? Why did you not answer? You're in captivity because of your sin. Your children have been sold because of your sin, but it is not permanent. You are still my people speaking to the remnant. Remember, that's what Zion certified when we uh, stood for when we saw this at the beginning. This is the remnant that he's speaking to. And he says in the middle of verse two, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? And of course the answer to that is what? No! My power is not stopped. My hand, the power in my right arm, it's not shortened. I will redeem all that I intend to redeem. Even though that you were receiving punishment for your sin, I will deal with your sin. Behold, the middle of verse 2, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink with lack of water and die of thirst. So this is that Exodus language that we've seen pop up all the way through Isaiah, right? Dealing with, with the, the plagues, the, dealing with the, the first plague uh, where the, the water is turned to blood, dealing with the ninth plague of darkness in the, in the end of the verse. Maybe it could be one of the plagues or it could be just the parting of the Red Sea where the fish all die. Right, But this is that language to say, I did that. Remember, I've redeemed you before. Remember, I promised to deliver you, and I did deliver you, and I did it in miraculous ways, so my arm is not short. My ability to redeem is not changed. Why? Because he is God, and he does not change. So he reminds them of the past, as he's done before, to strengthen their walk through the valley of the shadow of death now. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make the sackcloth their covering. I've done this in the past, so trust me now in the future. I've done this in the past, and I've redeemed you physically, and I'm promising to redeem you spiritually, to forgive your sins. So don't think. It's, do you hear any rebuke in these verses from God? Don't think I've forgotten you. Don't think I've forsaken you. I've done all of this, and I will do all of this. There's no, would you shut up and go to your room? How many times have I told you that I'm going to do this? I'm tired of hearing you complain. I'm tired of hearing you say things. That's not there, is it? This is a God who comforts his people. Comfort, chapter 40. Comfort my people. This is what we were reminded of at the end of the second servant song, that all of the nation, all of the creation rejoices because God comforted his people. 
For Yahweh has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Oh, but you've forgotten and forsaken us. No, I haven't. One of the commentators that I like so much is, ma'am, I, don't, I think he's passed away a few years ago, Alec Motier. He has a commentary and he has a shorter commentary, a large commentary and a shorter commentary. He also has a devotional book where he uses his own translation, translates every verse of Isaiah and then gives application. Listen to part of what he says at the end of chapter 49 in his devotional commentary. Feed your mind on the promises of God. Tell yourself all he has pledged to do. Hold on to his word. Look at the four promises in today's passage. And it's the same passage that we just looked at. He never forgets us, verses 14 through 16. He will increase his church, verses 17 through 23. He will give it victory over the world, verses 24 through 26. That's where all the world comes, comes to worship him, comes bearing children who will worship him. And he will ransom us from every alien power, the first three verses of chapter 50. Now that's a great summary of where we stand. We remember that this, that the God that we serve and the work that he did through his son Jesus Christ, the servant, the Messiah, who comes to live and to die and to be raised again and to ascend to the Father's right hand so that all who repent of their sins, turn away from their sins, go the opposite direction, all who repent of their sin are now in union with him because they've had their sin forgiven and all the promises of Abraham, all the promises of God are now the people, belong to the people who have repented and trusted in him. And so if that is us, if you're here confessing Christ today, then these promises are what just one way of talking about his character and his promises that propel us even when we feel like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, how many of you have lived long enough to know that you thought that when you were younger and then realized when you're older there was a darker valley? So this is prep work. Maybe you're not walking through anything right now. Maybe life is pretty good. You're thinking, yeah, I don't need all of that. You're going to need it. You will have a time where your faith is weak, where your desire for sin is greater than your desire for for Christ. You will have a time where things around you are falling so much that your entire life is changing and you will be tempted to focus on the valley instead of lifting your eyes. You'll be tempted to do that. So you need to remember from this lesson alone that these promises the promises that are made, the four promises in these passages. He never forgets us. He will increase his church. So not forgetting us, that lets us walk through the valley when we don't see anybody else and know that we're not alone. Amen? Not only that we're not alone, but that he has us inscribed on the palm of his hand. It's not just like the slave who is freed and then decides that they want to stay with their master, so they pierce their ear with an owl. Remember that in in scripture? It's not just that voluntary thing. It is that our master looks at us every day because we are inscribed before his face. Everything about us. Now that's a safe place to be, even in the darkness of the valley. But also... He will increase his church. So the command's for us to go and tell other people about this. All all the things that Jeff is talking about, about finding and entrusting faithful men with the truth of the scriptures so that they go find others that they can preach and the gospel goes forth and the kingdom advances and enlarges. All of that, we, we prize that. And it can be discouraging at times. There can be times that we witness and we're ridiculed or they just, time after time after time after time, they turn us away. That's not my God. I don't need that. That may be good for you, but it's not for me. I don't need that kind of a crutch. All of that. Isn't it tempted to be discouraged? 
and feel like, well, I don't even know why I'm doing this. Well, God promises to increase his church. He promises that all that the Father has given to the Son will come to him. And he also promises us that on our mission, he equips us to accomplish exactly what he intends to do. That promise is right here in Isaiah chapter 49. He will give it victory over the world. That is the church in verses 24 through 26. Even though it may seem like the church is growing in the wrong direction sometimes, the church will not fail because the church is the bride of Christ. Christ died for the church and it will not fail. So we can't just look at what we see in front of us. We have to lift our eyes and see all the children that God promises, all of the people that will come to faith in Christ when he sees fit, in the way that he sees fit, through the work of his son. And he will ransom us from every alien power. So in other words, everything that happens to thwart us from all of that doesn't matter. God will ransom us. He has ransomed us from sin. And even if we die today, guess what happens? We're with Jesus. And that's our, the, the summary of our inheritance is just to be with Jesus and to worship him with no struggle. So Isaiah teaches us how to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Isaiah teaches us how to keep our eyes lifted up to Christ because Christ is the fulfillment of all of this. He is the promised seed of Abraham. It is his work that delivers from sin. That's why this is so closely tied to that second servant song where we learn what he will do to provide salvation for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This is always what motivates us. The promises of God strengthen us to walk in faith and obedience as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the truth of your word. We are thankful that in Christ, all of these promises are fulfilled. And that in Christ is our hope in all of these situations. It is your character. It is his character. He is the exact representation of your being. He is the one who is completely and totally obedient to your will in everything that he did, even unto death, because he considered the joy set before him to endure the cross. And so we are a people who come knowing that even though there will be trials and tribulations in this world because there were trials and tribulations for him, there will be persecutions in this world because there, will be, there were persecutions for him and we are not above our master. But we know, Father, that you are the sovereign one. You know the end from the beginning. You know all the events of the past, as Isaiah tells us, and why they happened. And you carried them forth, as you said. You know everything that will happen in the future and why they will happen. So no one else can take credit for them. And we serve you, the omniscient, sovereign, powerful God. So strengthen us, Father, that our own walk and in obedience to you, you will never leave us or forsake us. It is promised in your word, and you are faithful to your promises. For by speaking your word, you have made an oath. And so we are grateful that no matter what we walk through, you are our hope. Life, death, and anything in between, Christ alone is how we live. So thank you for these promises. In Jesus' name, amen.